Ukraine in the World Today, a conversation with David Reif, a famous book writer and a war correspondent. You are listening to the podcast Explaining Ukraine and its series Thinking in Dark Times by Ukraine World. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm a Ukrainian philosopher and journalist and chief editor of Ukraine World. In this episode, I speak to David Reif, a famous intellectual and war correspondent. Reif is the author of many books, including Slaughterhouse, Bosnia and the Failure of the West, A Bed for the Night, Humanitarianism in Crisis, At the Point of a Gun, Democratic Dreams and Armed Intervention, In Praise of Forgetting, The Ironies of Historical Memory, and numerous others. He's also the editor of the journals and notebooks of his mother, Susan Zontag, published after her death. Reef is currently living between New York and Argentina, but regularly visits Ukraine. In this conversation, we speak about the role played by Ukraine and the Ukrainian struggle in the world today. Thinking in Dark Times is a podcast series by Ukraine World. This series seeks to make Ukraine and the current Russian war against Ukraine a focal point of our joint reflection on the world's present, past and future. We try to see the light through and despite the current darkness. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. Before we start, let me remind you that you can support us at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. David Reif, welcome to this podcast. Thank you. Uh, you are coming very often to Ukraine. What are you looking for? Well, I don't think I'm looking for anything. I think I, th- I think I feel some completely self-imposed obligation to be here. Uh, nobody's asking me to be here. I'm not sure I'm terribly useful, frankly. I keep thinking, trying to figure out ways that I might be useful, but so far I don't think I've come up with any. Um, but I think... Look, I've 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 done a lot of reporting. I've done a lot of thinking about global affairs, uh, etc. I wrote I wrote a book about the global food system once. I mean, so there are lots of overlaps. I was a war correspondent for a while in the Balkans and in West Africa, um, in Sierra Leone and Liberia and uh, Sudan, and so. I mean, there are lots of ways in which the conflict resonates, but I think it really is very simple, which is, I think, that what's going on here is the rarest of things, a just war. And so I feel that I should be here as much as I can, and I have the advantage of being old with a few dollars in my pocket and able to do more or less what I please. So I'm coming here every, well, every third month, basically, is the way it's been since the summer of 22. And I intend to go on. In fact, I'll be back sooner um, in October, and I'll spend October and November, or a lot of November here. But I think, I think there's a kind of obligation, if you think of yourself, it's a horrible term, but as a public intellectual, to be here. And I don't, I like, I don't, do, I don't talk about places I haven't been. So there's no question of my, you know, having opinions about Ukraine and not coming here. It's, it's just me. I, I, it's perfectly reasonable for people who 
don't travel, don't don't want to take risks, although obviously there's no risk to speak of in Kiev, at least now, God willing. Um, but um, so I just feel, and I'll write, a, you know, a, a, a very small book at some point, probably about all the cultural issues raised by the war. I mean, I, there are a hundred young people, including probably 99 of them Ukrainian, who can do a better job about the war. And I don't speak the language, so I'll never get the, you know, the politics of Zelensky or any of that stuff right. And there's no point in my, you know, I could work it up and do a sort of parachute journalism thing, but I'm obviously not going to do that. Whereas the cultural issues raised by Ukraine, the question of, you know, colonial, colonial relation to a great culture, a mammoth or world-spanning culture, and what you do with that and how you get, how you cope with it, how you get out from under it, uh, what your relationship is with it, whether you need to take a break from it. I mean, all these issues are interesting. And then uh, the other side of it is that I'm, I'm very anti-woke, and yet in, in the context of the U.S., and I have a substack with the rather pretentious title of Desire and Fate, um, which actually comes from a famous Marxist scientist of the 30s who said that there's the history of desire and the history of fate, and the problem is people don't know how to distinguish one from the other. Um, I write a lot about these cultural issues in, in Western Europe and the U.S., and Latin America, too, because I... I'm, I spend a couple of months a year, well, not now, now I'm coming here, but I, over the last 20 years, have been in Argent, mostly in Argentina, a bit in Chile, a bit in Mexico. And, and I wrote a book about Cuban exiles. And so, I, I mean, I'm sort of Latin America's second home. But, um, you know, the, some of the arguments the woke people make in the States, which I reject in the American context, are made here, and I'm very sympathetic to them. So that makes a very interesting tension. Uh, because, for example, saying the great Russian literature may be great, but to us it represents something else. I mean, the obvious example being the Pushkin statues, that, of course, Pushkin is one of the greatest poets who ever lived. I mean, every, you know, it, I mean, it doesn't matter what your politics are to know that. But of course, there weren't Pushkin statues in every town in Ukraine because he was a great poet. There were Pushkin statues because it was the Russian world. And so those are really, you know, trying to unpack those problems. I mean, that's what I'm basically trying to do here. Of course, some of the stuff are interests of mine from from before. I've always been interested in cinema. So this trip, I want to go to the Dovchenko Center and try to sort of understand what's been going on with, with all of that. And I, I hope at some point to get someone who really knows something, like someone you, of course, know, may have been a student of yours, Yaroslava Stroko, to, to go with me to Kharkiv and talk about the Kharkiv avant-garde. I mean, probably not now when it's under such danger. 
So that's what I'm doing here, and I'll, I'll, I'll keep coming. And people have been very generous. Uh, you know, I mean, they have no particular reason to. I have no influence with governments or such things. I'm not BHL or Snyder or Ann Applebaum. I mean, I, 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 I excused myself from that world a very, very long time ago, and I don't, I don't know these people. I mean, I know those three people, but I, I mean, I don't know the politicians they know, and I don't know the think tanks they know, and so I'm, I'm here, uh, Wiston Auden, W.H. Auden, the great Anglo-American poet, said somewhere, I don't have a gun, but I can spit. When you look at Ukrainian culture right now, uh, because for me it's incredible to see how this culture is developing despite the war, and uh, we're making festivals despite the war. We are, we're making music, making poetry despite the war. We write books despite the war. We are making book festivals despite the war. And um, sometimes people are very astonished when when they see that. Sometimes people are very astonished when they see uh, restaurants in Kiev uh, with uh, with wonderful food. But I'm telling them, look, this is this is not only this because there is so all things which are going in the in the spiritual or cultural realm, which are so major, so so important. But for 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 us, the Ukrainian cultural figures, it's it's a very normal thing because we would not survive without that. If we just uh, think about the war and we let the war just devour us, uh, we would die. So what do you think, what is your impression of this cultural scene in Ukraine? Well, that's one of the first things you notice here, if you're a person interested in culture. I mean, uh, look, I tell you, on the restaurants, just an anecdote. I, I was in, the last time I was here, which was about three months ago, I was in Kherson. It was uh, after it was uh, liberated, but before, obviously, the dam was blown. And so it was quite, you know, it was a little scary. Um, and I got back to Lviv, and I must have had Kherson in my brain. I was in a very nice restaurant in the center of Lviv, and I was meeting some extraordinary young people who were publishing a book of my mother's and have published Sebald, and I can't remember what the name, I'm sorry, but it's, it's, that's old age on my part. Um, and I, but I was early, and I was waiting for them. And the waiter, who could have been a waiter in Berlin or Los Angeles or anywhere else in the, the you know, the rich world, uh, the, north, the global north, as we say, simplistically, um, which includes Japan, um, he sa I said, do you have something sparkling like kava and, or prosecco or something? And he looked at me as if I were the village idiot. He was quite right, by the way. And he said, which one do you want? <laughs> and so you see that, I mean, that, you know, there's that Ukraine, and then there's Kherson, where you can, you could before the, before the, the dam blew, you know, you were, we were down by the river and they were 300 meters away, literally the length of the river away, the width of the river away. But the cultural thing, I think is amazing. I mean, I think it's, uh, I've never, I didn't. One knows something about this culture. It's not unknown to me, and I'm not 
um, you know, I'm a reasonably cultivated person, and certainly cinema in particular is something I know about. So Dovchenko's always been a kind of idol of mine. And so, I mean, I, but you, the amount is extraordinary. And the, the depth of it and the fact that people are still publishing books and, and not necessarily bo books about the war. Obviously, I don't read Ukraine. I'm only reading what's being translated. And that's, I'm sure, very unrepresentative because, of course, the stars get published first and probably in the best translations. Uh, but, uh, you know... Uh, it's everywhere. People are very ambitious. It's not just about the war. But this is a big, important country. You know, my only other experience of... The only other just war I ever witnessed, and I've seen a lot of wars. Uh, I spent 15 years doing that, basically. I mean, I wasn't doing the military stuff. I was doing the humanitarian consequences of that because I was even a very minor aid official at one point in one of the major in MSF France to be specific. I was kind of in-house advisor to them and even helped out in the field. I wrote a book about humanitarian aid and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the only other place I was ever in where I thought the cause of the side I was on, if you will, was just was Bosnia. But Bosnia is a village. I mean, Bosnia was a provincial part of a fairly provincial country. Uh, and so any cultural thing you did, if, if my mother came to do the Godot play uh, as she did, if Joan Baez came to sing, if Agnes B came to you know, do some fashion thing, you know, they were... Uh, adding to the place, you don't need any of that. Uh, you're, you've got, you know, culture to spare, as they say. Uh, there's no reason. I mean, if foreigners, you know, if you're going to have international festivals, you obviously don't want it to be all Ukrainian. So, of course, you want Carrère and uh, whoever, I mean, uh, the, the figures of literature, um, global literature, global cinema, whatever. But, you know, you, you, this culture, for a country that's this damaged by war, physically damaged, I would imagine, psychically damaged, uh, just the number. I mean, uh, the cultural thing is amazing, and it's almost, being here uh, is very, you know, there's a lot of dissonance for example, uh, in Lviv, I was, last time I was there, I was in um, the, uh, doing some sort of cultural thing at the Uku uh, that they asked me to do. And, uh, and then I started walking around and I would every, regularly see these women suddenly in tears. And as it was explained to me that they were getting the bad news, and so, you know, on the one hand, here's Lviv, this beautiful city, and there's Uku, which which is really ambitious stuff going on there, and really first-rate stuff. I mean, I, I'm, they may ask me, I will certainly accept if they do ask me to teach 
briefly there next year. Um, but, uh, you know, and then there, these women hearing that their husbands, sons, brothers, whatever, have been killed and people crying in the street. And so you go back and forth here between those two realities. And I, I mean, I greatly admire people's fortitude because culture, it would, it's very easy to lapse into barbarism and you haven't done it. And I think that's very remarkable. When you look at these wars that you have visited, and you certainly uh, looked into many cruelties, right? Mm. And uh, when we look at what Russia is doing, for us it's something unthinkable. Even, even though we, we know Russian culture very well, we, we know the, the other side of the Russian culture. Pushkin is a, is a good facade, which, which hides the horrible things which are happening inside Russia, which has been happening inside Russia for many, many centuries. And this is what makes Ukrainians and some other nations the true critics and the true psychoanalysts of the Russian culture, which Russians, of course, do not want to accept. But, uh, but I'm not asking about Pushkin or Russian literature, but I'm asking about this cruelty. So... We are facing a situation when there are regular shelling of Ukrainian cities. Uh, we are making this interview when Russians have been shelling Odessa. And um, for me, it's, it is also a very important thing for, for our audience to understand that this idea of the Russian world is a fake idea. Why? Because Russians pretend that... Uh, they came here to defend Russian-speaking people and the Russian church, but they precisely bombed Russian-speaking people and Russian churches. They bombed the Russian church in Odessa, for example, and, and I have seen many Russian church, or the so-called Ukrainian Orthodox Church of Moscow Patriarchy, which were bombed by the Russian missiles or by, by the Russian artillery. And that makes uh, me to a conclusion that basically what Russian political culture lacks is precisely this division between us and them, which is an interesting thing because they are actually enlarging as far as possible this space of us, saying all oh, this Ukraine is our place, Europe is our place, the whole world we, we bring their good news is our place, we can invade it or whatever. But at the same time, in this space where they declared their space, there is a big alienation going on, that people-to-people -people contacts are alienated, that people feel that they are actually enemies to, to each other. Uh, is it something specific? Or have you seen it well, anywhere else? Look, I don't think this war is... I think this war is terribly cruel and obviously it's being waged in a way that you know has pretty much every war crime except you know mass extermination uh, but pretty much everything else systematic rape is a weapon of war torture camps uh, you know the systematic attacks on civilian objects as we say in 
the international humanitarian law world, that is to say, churches, granaries, uh, you know, things that are un, that are literally under the Geneva Conventions. These are, uh, you know, these are war crimes. And the Russians are, but, you know, is it crueler than Ethiopia? Is it crueler than El Salvador in the 80s? No. But it's, what's different is the pretense, uh, I think. I mean, the, 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 the idea that actually you, you claim not just to be a superior civilization, culture, but you also claim you're rescuing because there is a bit of, you know, these people, you know, the, the, your, you Ukrainians in their logic of the, you know, the Dugans and the this and the that, those people are your uh, heretics. You've, 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 you've abandoned the Not truth. only in heretics, but Satanists, as they call Well, yes. Well, that's, of course, what is different. And so, you know, that I have not, I've never seen a, anything like that. I mean, there's no pretense here that, uh, I mean, even the Serbs who did all kinds of unspeakable things during the Bosnian War, they never said, you know, you Muslims, you're not really Muslims. Or, you know, they, they didn't do what's being done here, which is, there's no such thing as Ukraine. There's no such thing as the Ukrainian language. There is no Ukrainian culture. There's just Ruskimir. Okay. That I've never seen anywhere. You know, the brutality, you know, is, are, are they being more brutal than the, in the Second Chechen War? No, I don't, or in Syria when they did what they did. That's what they do. I mean, the fact is, whatever Russia was, and we could argue, I mean, we could argue, I don't know that you and I disagree, but I mean, one could, one could have a discussion about how, how much this brutality is in the DNA, not just of Russian politics, but of Russian culture. I mean, that's a real debate, and one, I think, very much worth having, which I know you're having, you've written about it. Um, and, uh, you know, Victoria Amelina did, uh, before she died, she said, she, you know, writing very brilliantly about all that. Uh, that's never happened before. This is, it's a salvationist war. I mean, I watch, I don't speak Russian, but I, there's a wonderful woman called Julia Davis in Washington who translates the, you know, Solovyov and, and, uh, uh, what's her name? Uh, the the woman who runs it, uh, uh, who runs RT. Simonian. Uh, Simonian, and uh, you know what they say is insane. It's not just that it's cruel or barbarous. Because listen, trust me, in Addis Ababa or Khartoum, they're cruel and barbarous. Maybe as cruel, probably as cruel and barbarous, certainly in Sudan. Uh, in those bad days, or in Sierra Leone, uh, where I was a bit. Uh, but this is crazy. Uh, this is a this is a fantasy world. And they've also done a kind of this is the book of the apocalypse. They've they've decided, you know, you feel like they th they really do think it's the end of that it's 
Gog and Magog, as we learned in you know, Sunday school and all that. I have never seen anything like this. And then it gets really crazy on a level. I mean, of course, Solovyov's a clown. I understand all that. But he's a representative clown. Um, so there was a moment, again, in these translations where he's... They're talking about how if, you know, if, if NATO doesn't stop uh, helping Ukraine, well, they'll just have to conquer. And so he says, well, we'll have to go back to Berlin and we'll have to go back to uh, Amsterdam and we'll have to go back to Rome and we'll have to go back to Paris. We were there in 1815. I don't know why we ever left, he says. And at that point, you feel you're in a psycho ward. Except it's a psycho ward with, you know, 20,000 artillery pieces, unfortunately, um, and a psycho ward where, unfortunately, you know, I wish they were making all the military mistakes they made in the first months of the war, but it doesn't seem that way. And you also have tasks that you didn't have then militarily. I think... I've never seen madness of this kind. This is out of, I don't know. It's a, I, I don't know that there's ever been anything like this. I mean, there have been crazy dictators, Idi Amin, say, but they had such little influence or power. And here's this enormous power that's totally insane, but thinks it's rescuing the world from the Satanists, the gays, the woke, the whatever, 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 whatever. But above all, denying this people, 45 million people, their actual identity. And that I don't think we've had. I don't know of any example of this. And whether that's, you know, whether that's, whether that and the culture where they intersect, I don't know. Do you think it's really madness or... Hmm. It is uh, some logic of thinking, which is probably pervert logic of thinking, but for example, this apocalypse, apocalypsism of Russian philosophy is very present. I mean, there is a good reflection of Nikolai Berdyaev about that, yeah. right? How, yeah. how the Russian communism was actually taking, borrowing the Russian religious apocalyptic and uh, probably we see the same thing right now with, with Putin, with Dugin, and, and, and all the rest. So maybe there is a thinking behind it. And uh, this, we cannot just say, well, these people are mad. There is a thinking behind it. We need to understand this thinking. We, need, we, we don't have to, I think, uh, pretend that um, that's a deviation. That's a deviation that will somehow go away. The problem is it's not going to go away because if we see the, the you know, patterns of the Russian thinking in 19th century, 20th century, 21st century, we see that only facade is going, is changing. But the, the core, like this messianism, this global thinking, this, this meprization of, of locality, this imperialism, it is all there. Well, I certainly agree that, well, first of all, you're, you're absolutely right to, to question, you know, insanity is a, on some level a kind of cop-out as a response to things. Of course, it has a logic 
But there, you know, it has a logic the way great totalitarian imperial powers have had a logic uh, where, uh, you know, your people are, in a sense, that... I mean, it's a model. Dugan is, you know, is very... It's very clear with Dugan because, you know, the Russians are, in a sense, the chosen people, and the chosen people must have sovereignty. Uh, I mean, that's basically... The, I mean, of course, it, as you say, Berdaev... Russian liberalism is very weak, always has been, to the extent it existed in people like Belinsky. Um, you know, it's fragile, weak, it never really took off uh, in any serious way. Uh, I mean, you know, I mean, yeah. the Shestov is much, I mean, I wish Belinsky were, I wish the B were as important in the history of Russian culture as, as Shestov, but it, it isn't. And there is a... And Shestov is a Jewish writer and it, born yeah. in Kiev, right? Yes, <laughs> indeed, yes. Well, that's the, there are a lot of those ironies around, but um, I don't, uh, no, I think it's a profound, it's a, it's a war of a culture that wants to dominate. Now, would they, you know, if they had, if you had, as they imagined you would, uh, surrendered or been conquered in short order, you know, would they have stopped there? I have no idea. I mean, I'm not, that's not, that's way outside my, area of confidence, but they do see themselves as redemptive. Of course, there is a lot of religion actually in Russian political thinking, but let me ask you about the world. You know the world quite well, you're living in Argentina, you have seen many, many countries, south, north, and look, there are two narratives actually about the world, one narrative and about imperialism in the world. One narrative is that uh, what we are witnessing right now is the last or before the last imperial war, Russian Federation, Russian Empire, because Russian Empire is actually collapsing. It, it started collapsing in 1917. It lost some territories, then it continued its collapse in 1991. It lost even more territories. And now this is the third stage. Another narrative that you see in Russian propaganda, that you see probably in countries like Brazil or Mexico or India or China, is that, no, this is actually the war of the end of Western imperialism. So the, 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 the power of the West is shrinking. Ukraine is a latecomer in the, with this Western world, and this war is actually um, has no, no sense because the West is actually collapsing. And... Uh, who is right, in your opinion? Who is right in this? If if we don't ha if you if we don't take these propaganda narratives and if we look very soberly into the world, because on the one hand, we see that Russian propaganda says that the West is always collapsing. If you if you look at the Russian religious philosophy one hundred years ago, they would they would tell the same things about the West. As Dugin is saying now, oh, if you take uh, the, the Russian Slavophiles in the early 19th century, you will have the same 
But at the same time, now we probably indeed see uh, the West, which is weak. And my problem is with this thinking in the West is that this is kind of a masochism of weakness, like people enjoying enjoy saying they are weak and they cannot do anything and uh, the world will be dominated by China. And uh, I, I have sometimes the impression that this... Western world, democratic world, how you call it, maybe democratic world is not the best thing to call it, is um, too much absorbed by this self-flagellation. So if you look at these different narratives, maybe you, you see another story, which is kind of a clandestine story, which better describes what's going on. I don't know if I have a better description, but I have a somewhat different description. I think that... I mean, I think the Russian imperial project is real. I do think Putin has the idea of restoring a Russian empire. Now, where it extends to, whether it includes NATO countries already in NATO or not, I don't know. Of course it does. Well, Bo I assume it Baltic does. Baltic states, because well, indeed, Putin, well, that, Putin wants to be Peter I. And to be Peter I, he should reconquer Bal Baltic states and Finland. Well, I would have thought so, but I don't. I mean, I, I, that's my hunch, but I'm not confident about the assertion. I mean, there are, you know, real problems with, with doing that. There are three things I would say. The first is I do think the idea is the reconstitution of Russian imperial power, that really everything went wrong when the Brusilov offensive... <laughs> failed and uh, you know the czar got bad advice i mean although of course they use all these stalinist tropes as well i mean it's quite fascinating to see some of the recruitment videos that they do because it's all a mix of films and reality it's got stalin but it also has peter the great and catherine and and this one and that one and the czar and i mean nicholas ii and and so it you know it's a kind of kind of hideous, um, you know, stew of, of kind of everything. And Poltava and... Uh, anyway. I do think the project is restoration. I think that, though, that what they've been very clever in doing in the Global South is taking the animosities, resentments, wounds, call it whatever you like, of the Global South toward above all the United States. I mean, maybe a little bit France and the Sahel where Wagner is, but mostly the U.S. So it's really the old, the enemy of, uh, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. I mean, Lula considers Russia, uh, you know, a, a, a force, a less negative force than the U.S. So does Petro. So does Lopez Obrador. I'm just speaking about Latin America. Um, Africa's separate problem because there are real problems. I mean, it it is true that when you know the United States was the Reagan administration was supporting apartheid, that you know uh, the Soviet Union was giving weapons to the ANC. It's not conceivable that the ANC would change its position for very specific historical reasons. That's so. The recon. I my view is, for what it's worth, is 
there's this project to reconstitute the empire. And it's not just a, a physical project, it's a metaphysical project. That, that I think is real. The second thing is the West. And there are two things, it seems to me, going on. And they're somewhat, they're connected, but not entirely. Um, the first is that there is this, I, I mean, uh, Pascal Bruckner was right all those years ago when he wrote Le Sanglot de l'Homme Blanc and, and those books. It's, la Tyrannie de la Pénitence. Yeah, I agree with him about those things. I think that, which isn't, uh, it's become a kind of, Almost, there's a kind of, there's a kind of very, very, um, a kind of false erotics in all this of submission. I mean, again, uh, you know, Welbeck, uh, I don't actually like the book, but the title's great. And I know what, I think I know what he had in mind. I don't think he really realized The, um, succeeded with that book, but uh, I, I, of course, there's a desire to be punished. There's a kind of strange, convulsive masochism. It's, in many ways, largely performative. I mean, I give you an example. Now, in in the U.S., in cultural institutions, um you know, the left, uh, universities, arts centers, they have what they call land acknowledgements, which is basically someone says, well, we acknowledge that we're on the land, and they mention some Indian nation, some indigenous nation. But they never offer to give it back. <laughs> I mean, they do. So there's a lot of performative stuff. And even the woke stuff in the American context, it's about what we would have called in my youth, the ruling class. Uh, nobody in the working class is benefiting from all this. On the contrary, it's, if anything, this is, these are issues where, you know, if a professor says some anti-woke thing, you know, students get very upset. The fact that they, Many of these universities are in neighborhoods that are dirt poor, like Yale. You know, you, you leave the Yale campus and then you're in one of the poorest cities in the United States. But they don't get, I mean, listen, they denounce it, but they certainly don't stop classes or, you know, demand that Yale, uh, uh, I don't know, give a lot of money to rebuild the city of New Haven. No, they say we need more diversity and blah, blah, blah. It's performative. But it's paralyzing, I think. And it means that you need... Um, it's very difficult to just say, you know, to defend the culture for all its faults. It, it, it's become something, you know, the enlightened classes, what I call in one of my books, the, the philanthropic academic cultural complex with apologies to President Eisenhower's military industrial complex. Uh, it is very difficult to just say, look, you know, I'm sorry, but these are, 
you know, this society is absolutely right to see Russia as an enemy, but an enemy in a in a proper sense. I mean, in, in whether there should be a war or not. But I'm oh, I'm very materialistic. I'm not very spiritual, and I do think that there are other elements at play here. For example, Europe. It was to Europe's material advantage to a live under the umbrella of American power. So they didn't have to pay for anything. And the Americans would spend all this money and then they could brag about how great their social systems were and how terrible the American one was. But of course, they were, you know, they were sheltering under American military power. And the other thing is that the European Union had, in my view, a kind of utopian fantasy that you could have soft power without hard power. And it's just not true. And they have discovered this very, very late. And I don't know if it's too late or not. I hope not. I hope it's not too late. But they really, and then it was a real benefit. Look, when I was in, I, I was very briefly living in Germany just before the end of, just before the beginning of the Yugoslav Wars. And for reasons that are of no particular interest, uh, I had a friend who'd been a, a, a university pal of Gerhard Schroeder's. So I used to go every so often to uh, the Bundeskanzlerei, and I would meet him. And he just thought this German-Russian condominium was fabulous. And I don't think he only thought it was fabulous because he was making money, although he made a vast amount of money, of course. Um, but I think he thought, great, you know, they'll be the cheap energy, we'll be the manufacturers, and this is a great deal. We don't have to worry about, you know, silly things like tanks and, and self-propelled artillery pieces. And, and for they benefited from it until, in a sense, the bill came due in Ukraine, in my view. Uh, suddenly they discovered, you know, no, you actually have to have uh, real hard power. You can't let your munitions factories fall apart. The United States, mind you, which has an you know, enormous military budget, was, you know, badly configured in the sense that it didn't, the American military planners obviously did not think they were ever going to fight a, you know, the war that you're fighting, a thousand kilometer front line where, which is basically, you know, as they say, you know, artillery queen of the battlefield as the war college cliche has it. Um, so that we ran out of munitions. I mean, the reason Biden, this is maybe of no interest to your listeners and or maybe it's just so well known that that people will roll their eyes that I'm even saying it but you know the reason Biden changed his mind about the cluster munitions is we're out of regular munitions and since they do want to keep you supplied there was nothing else to do but to send the DIPCMs over um, and you know so the Americans themselves have to 
retool. The difference being that there's no real opposition to the military budget in the United States. It it is the United States never stopped believing in hard power. Whatever it's there was no European fantasy that you could have one without the other. In that sense, the United States is much closer to India or to China in its views of these things than it is to Germany or or France. Um, but whether I do think there was something in the European project that thought that we were past all this. I mean, I don't mean to, uh, you know, I mean, I think of someone like Habermas, uh, the post-national constellation. What, you know, you do want to say, what the blank is he smoking? Um, because there was no evidence for this. It was completely stipulative. And there was this class that also profited from it. And, uh, and then a, a whole culture that, uh, that grew up around it. I mean, in Germany, for example, um, I mean, France is a special case, as you know, because you spent a good part of your life there. But, you know, France is a country which isn't anti-militarist. It's not... Uh, they don't spend enough money, but they're not. There's no anti-militarist culture of any consequence in France on either left or right. And there's obviously they're pro-nuclear, unlike the rest of Western Europe. Um, but I mean, there was a kind of um, I don't know how to put it. There was a kind of culture that that then grew up to support these, in my view, mistaken ideas. And it'll be very interesting now that the budgets are shifting uh, to see whether there's a cultural change. I'm fascinated by Rheinmetall, which obviously just announced it was going to build a, co-build with one of your weapons manufacturers a, a plant here. And actually, I thought it was quite impressive that the, the chairman said that they would shoot down any Russian missiles or planes if 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 attacked. But you know, in nineteen ninety-five, if you were a bright engineering graduate, you wanted to work for Audi or you wanted to work for I don't know what. You didn't the military was for the dumb people. Um but now that these immense military expenditures are being made and factories are being built and Rheinmetall is hiring like crazy uh, and even dragging, you know, as they always do, you know, people from Croatia and folks like that who they need because the birth rate's so low. Um, it'll be interesting to see if the culture changes. It, but again, it was... I do think that, I mean, in this I am a militarist. I do think that if Europe had had the kind of commitment to being well-armed and, and thinking in terms of land war against Russia, that they might not have invaded. Maybe they would have. But maybe they wouldn't have. I, I do think you're the, you Ukrainians are the victims of this European fantasy. 
Yes, I also do in that way, and I write a lot about this um, overestimation of the idea of this ex- of the agora ethics, what I call agora ethics, that everybody is exchanging with everybody else. We can talk to anybody. This Habermasian idea of infinite space of communication. Yes, agora is a good thing, but you need to protect it. You need to have a warrior class of warrior ethics that would protect it, that would understand where Agora ends and when you, when, when you need to fight. Maybe my last question. Um, yes, I agree with that, by the way. I think you absolutely need a, as they say in the U.S. Marines, you need people on the wall. Uh, yeah. And I, I, I think when you look at the mass culture, you actually see how this demand for this new warrior ethics is coming back. And maybe there is a culture change. Or the problem for us, for Ukrainians, that how many years it will take and uh, whether and how many people we will lose until this culture is changing to the fact that industrial complex in our partners will develop again. There, I, I see, look, the tragedy of Ukraine is that you, you were basically forced into giving up the things that might have protected you in 94 and that had you kept them this none of this would have happened you know north korea is the living proof of why countries that are in danger from other countries i mean forget about the morality i'm obviously not comparing north korea which is a hideous tyranny to ukraine for a second but you know, the reason North Korea hasn't been attacked is because it has nuclear weapons. Simple as that. If you hadn't agreed, given up, I don't know the history well enough to know why the decision was made. We have a podcast about this. To our listeners, go to a podcast with Mariana Budjerin about Budapest Memorandum and all this giving up of the nuclear weapons. But of course, if you had them, this wouldn't have happened. There's no no doubt in the world yeah, I, and you're I still think, i think i think we didn't have much choice at that time but what we should have received in return is a real real security guarantees and even now we don't have them because there are all two options either we become a nato member or we get nuclear power again right nuclear weapons again there's no other choice to defend no, against russia there's another choice i mean the only there's a halfway house to NATO, which is a huge deployment of NATO troops on Ukrainian soil, at least for, you know, as a sort of halfway mark, which if I, in my more optimistic moments, is what I think will happen uh, on the way, I hope, to full NATO membership, because it's preposterous, you of all, you know, you're the you're the you're the wall. I was you know using that Marine Corps U.S. Marine Corps thing about manning the wall, but I mean the fact is, you are the wall, and I don't share the optimism of some people I meet in this country. I think of Yaroslav Hristak, for example, who seem to think that Russia will can be democratized. I think Russia's hopeless. I think you need a, an enormous wall of, you know, missiles and all that stuff because I don't think it's going to change. I'm, I, 
you know, the examples that people give, I don't want to go on and on, but are, you know, Germany after World War II, but Russia's not going to be occupied. Exactly, yes. And this, this is just, this is wishful, this is wishful thinking. And I don't know that you, some of Ukraine's foreign friends, I don't want to name them, and I think on balance they've been very helpful to you. So if they're helpful to you, I'm for them whatever my differences with, you know, BHL or whatever, but it doesn't matter. I mean, I'm, if he's, if he helps, then, then God bless him. But, uh, I will enlist in his group, but it doesn't help to say Russia will be thrown out of the security council. Russia will be this, Russia will be that. It's not, that's not going to happen. You have to, you both have to, be given the means to defend yourself, and you have to be defended. And that's, and you know, the nuclear thing may or may not come. Of course, if you're in NATO, you are a nuclear power by definition, so you wouldn't actually have to do anything. Um, you would just be, which is why. I'm completely for that, and as I say, I think even if, God willing, you prevail, on the battlefield, and we didn't talk, but of course we could have talked about why everything is so damn slow. Uh, you get the weapons, but after you've lost all the best people, um, I mean, you will get the Atacams and you will get the F-16s, but after all these wonderful people have died, um, it's, 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 uh, it's unspeakable. Uh, but, y you know, there there is no, there is no option except, you know, you've got, you're stuck with this hideous neighbor. And I don't think, I mean, in any foreseeable, my, you know, I'll be long gone, but I mean, I think my grandchildren will be long gone before Russia. I'm very pessimistic about Russia changing. In that sense, I agree completely with you about this, Cultural. I think I think we need to be prepared for the worst and uh, for a long war, uh, because we are in the long war with Russia for centuries. Hmm. But at the same time, the changes in this geography are usually very very fast, and they, they it takes usually three days for an empire to to, well, to yeah, collapse. I mean, listen, I hate to quote Lenin, but you know what Lenin famously said, you know. Sometimes nothing happens for decades, and sometimes decades happen in weeks. Yeah. And it's true. The question is, can you... I mean, this is a country that is being martyred. And, you know, can this country... I hate, it's too, maybe too religious of, 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 of verb, but... Um, a word, but I... You know, the losses you're taking are, you know, beyond description, as you know, of course, infinitely better than I do. And so, in a sense, you know, you, you know, does Ukraine have the strength to hold on? This was a very divided country that Putin, to some extent, unified. I mean, I meet people, I was in Odessa in two months ago, two and a half months ago. And I meet all these people who are changing languages. And they're not, they're not doing it in some horrible way. They're, 
they're still talking to their grannies in Russian. But these are people who never spoke Ukrainian. And you talk about, I'm talking about people in their late teens, early 20s, you know. I mean, that's national consolidation. I mean, on a level that, at least as far as I know, I, I've been in Ukraine, I was in Ukraine before the war, but I never would claim to know it. Uh, I, it was not my impression the way it was before. Even that mayor of, of Odessa who, you know, very doubtful character from what I was told, but suddenly he's making this declaration that's wholly admirable. Um, so I, uh, you know, so those are the questions. So, you know, if I can, anyway, just, you know, I mean, anything, I feel very honored to be here. Um, maybe I'll just leave it at that. Thank you. Thank you, David. And thank you for this conversation. This was a podcast explaining Ukraine and its series Thinking in Dark Times by Ukraine World. This series seeks to make Ukraine and the current Russian war against Ukraine a focal point of our joint reflection on the world's present, past and future. We try to see the light through and despite the current darkness. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm Ukrainian philosopher and journalist and chief editor of Ukraine World. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. You can support us at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. You can also support our volunteer trips to the frontline areas at paypalukraine.resistinggmail.com. Ukraine.resistinggmail.com. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine.